Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you are new with us, we have been studying through the Gospel of John, and so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair near you. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, because here at Veneration, we stand upon the Word of God and believe that it is truly living and active and able to transform our lives. So that's our gift to you. This morning... You guys may want to buckle your seatbelts because as I've been preparing for this message, as we've been walking through this text, we are going to cover a large section of verses, 45 to be specific. And the reason for that is when we are studying the text, a lot of what makes the text come to life is the context and the story and how it is written. And so I just believed that we have to cover this whole section of text to really understand what God is trying to tell us this morning. So here's how we're going to do it. We are going to zoom in on the text and walk through it, and then we are going to pull ourselves out from a bird's eye view and say, What is this text saying to us? First, we're going to see what it says about Jesus, and then we're going to say, see, where is it really calling us to go as a people and as a church? So we're going to be in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I've entitled this message, Divine Opportunity. And really, I believe in this country, we are in this place of divine opportunity for the gospel to go forth. As we're going to see in this text, Jesus encounters this woman who he was not supposed to be talking to and seized an opportunity in an inopportune time to proclaim the gospel to a woman that was in deep need. We as the church have divine opportunity right now to advance the gospel in a nation that is hurting and divided. May revival come. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I pray that you would encompass this time. Come here right now in this moment. Holy Spirit, move how you want to move. As your word goes forth, God, would you make clear what you are wanting to say to us, to me. God, and if there's anything that wants to escape my mouth that is not of you, would you shield it by your spirit and replace it with your words? God, this is your time for the glorification of your name. We invite you to this place in Jesus' name. Amen. So without further ado, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And then verse 4 says, And he had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Well, for one, because on the way from Judea to Galilee, you had to go through Samaria. What we know about Samaria is that the Jews and the Samaritans had no encounters with one another. They avoided one another at all costs. And we don't have time to address why that is other than I'm going to read this statement from the New American Commentary that says this. The Samaritans were regarded by the Jews as despised half-breeds, the offspring of the resettlement policies of the cruel Assyrians who, after sacking the northern kingdom in 722, 
transported large groups of conquered Jews to other conquered sites and repopulated the partially vacated sites with other conquered peoples. We see that in 2 Kings 17. The result was an intermingling of peoples who were mixing of the races, lost much of their formal national identities, and were thus forced to develop new syncretistic identities. The Jewish desire for a pure and loyal people of God, particularly after the return from Babylonian exile, led Ezra to develop a segregation policy that excluded Samaritans and others of mixed backgrounds. So all that to say, Jews and Samaritans did not get along. So when John is saying they had to go through Samaria, he was literally saying, oh my gosh, we had to go through Samaria to get where we were going. There was one other option. They could cross the Jordan near Jericho, travel north up the east bank or the Transjordan, and then once they got towards Galilee, cross back to the west bank near the Sea of Galilee. But all that to say, it was a great detour. So they could either detour to get where they were going or go right through Samaria. And here they go, right through Samaria. So he had come to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. We see that in Genesis 48, verse 6. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, don't miss this, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So right here we see a statement by John describing Jesus' humanity and his deity. We know that Jesus was fully God and fully man. The reason we know he was fully man was throughout the Gospels we see it, but specifically right here it says Jesus was wearied. He was tired. He was traveling to get to where he was going, and he was tired. And it was noon because it was the sixth hour, so we know that it was hot. So Jesus is tired, and he is in need of a drink, which brings him to this well. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Jews did not buy food from Samaritans. So the disciples had gone to buy food against all social and economic norms. Jesus is sitting at a well with a woman from Samaria who comes to draw water, and he initiates a conversation. One was because he was thirsty. He said, give me a drink. But as we're going to see, this initiated conversation was about to lead to something that would change this woman's life forever. It was a divine opportunity. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This shocked this woman because not only was she from Samaria, but the Jews viewed because of this half-breed mentality that a woman was ceremonial unclean and therefore not to be approached. So not only is this woman a Samaritan, she is also a woman. Jesus defined all normalities, all social what the social norm, he defies it, and he approaches her with a loving heart, asks her for a drink, and she's about to be changed forever. 
for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you're in here this morning, hear this. If you will ask, Jesus will give. That's what he says. He says to this woman, if you would have just asked me for this living water, I would have given it to you. If you're in here this morning and you need something, if you need God to show himself to you, ask. If we will ask, Jesus gives. He is the giver of the greatest gift, salvation, and it's available to anyone who will call upon his name and ask. Verse 11, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty thirsty again. See, Jesus is speaking of something eternal. This woman is still thinking it's something temporal that will fulfill her, that will quench this thirst. But Jesus is saying, I have something so much greater to offer you. I have living water. I have eternal life to anyone who will ask. And call upon my name. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And then he says this, What you have said is true. Notice how Jesus does not degrade her for her five husbands. He does not even condemn her. He literally just says, what you have said is true. The power in this statement is that Jesus is saying, I know your past and I am still offering you eternal life. I am still offering you what only I can give. I am offering you living water that will quench the deepest thirst of your soul. Despite your sin, despite where you have been, Jesus did not condemn her. He offered her what was free. And if you're in this place this morning and you think, man, Luke, I have messed up. You don't know my past. You don't know where I have been. You don't know the things that I struggle with. I will say this. You're right. I don't. But I know a God that is so willing to forgive that and so willing to set you free if you will just ask. And not just ask, but turn from the very sin that you are entrenched in so that he can set it free and wipe it clean. Now, don't miss this because what Jesus does here. Is amazing. He confronts her sin by just saying, that which you have said is true. You, you, it is true that you have had five husbands. 
The woman immediately tries to change the conversation away from her sin to, to this new statement that she says in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceived that you are a prophet. And how often is that us? I know it is in my life. If there's something that I am dealing with, that I'm struggling with, that I don't want confronted, when it is brought up, the first thing I want to do is change the subject. Right? Change the topic away from whatever my struggle is. But I want you to see this. Even with her trying to change the subject, Jesus still comes and goes after her heart. He goes after it. And he says this. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Before we go on, I want to, us to understand this. Samaritans and Jews both viewed the place where the temple was going to be or where God was going to be worshipped differently. Samaritans only believed in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, all supposedly written by Moses. The Jews, however, believed the full Hebrew canon, which caused them to believe that God was to be worshipped in Jerusalem. Why? Because David set out to seat the temple in Jerusalem. We know that God allowed Solomon to do that and not David. But the Samaritans went off of what Moses said. And it said in Deuteronomy 12:5, But you shall seek a place the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what this woman is asking. She's saying, well, Jesus, if you're a prophet, you think that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, but we are on this mountain. Which mountain? Mount Gerizim, which is overlooking Shechem, where Abraham was to stand and proclaim blessing as they entered into the land that he was promised. So all that to say, this woman is saying, you cannot be a prophet because there is one prophet, and that was Moses, Deuteronomy 34. And there has arisen a prophet since, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. So all that to say, she brings, she goes away from her sin and enters into this conversation about worship. And what does Jesus say in response? Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. See, Jesus is not attacking her sincerity of her worship. He's just saying, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You're worshiping the wrong God. Salvation comes from me, and I am offering it to you freely if you will turn to me. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Before we go on, I just want to say this. We do not have the freedom to worship God however we so choose. Whether it's emotion, whether it's oh, well, I'm a hyper-charismatic, and I lean this way, or I'm stoic, and I don't believe in the power of the Spirit, whatever it is, God demands that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because he is holy and worthy to be worshiped. 
So we do not come to God and worship him on our terms, however we desire. In fact, Hebrews 12 gives us an example of how we are to worship. He says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God worship that is acceptable with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, our desire at this church is that we would be a people that purely worship God with reverence and awe, not fleeting emotion, not crazy craziness, but really this sense of reverence and awe for a holy God that has set us free. Now, if your seatbelts are buckled, we're getting to the end, but buckle them tighter, and we're going to work through this, and then we're going to apply it. Verse 27, or no, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, as in the person you're talking about is coming, Jesus. I know he is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am who I speak to you. I am he. Jesus says, I am the one. I am the king. I am the Messiah that you think is coming. I am standing right before you. Verse 27 Just then his disciples came, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? Can you imagine this awkward moment when the disciples come back from buying food, and they see Jesus at a well talking not only to a Samaritan, but to a woman, and there's this awkwardness of like, man, did you see that? Uh, Do we say anything, or do we just let it go? We've all been in that place where we, we encounter some awkward moment and we really don't know how to address it. That's what's going on. The disciples are like, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan and not only that, a woman. What do we do? Do we say something or do we just let it go? Verse 29, come and see. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. She said, can this be the Christ? So they went out of the town, and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, don't miss it, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice, what? Together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not Labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And as we wrap it up, verse 39, many Samaritans from the town, don't miss this, believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, she said, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay, which was also crazy because Samaritans do not ask Jews to stay. They just don't. But Jesus, knowing the condition of the heart, wanted to stay. Why? To set them free. Verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, listen to this. 
It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they two had gone to the feast. So I know that that is a lot of text, and I know that we don't have time to really go into this like I want. There's a lot here, but I think we need to take a snapshot and now see what is Jesus saying? Because he's saying a lot to this woman regarding eternal life and living water. He's also saying a lot regarding the harvest is here. The fields are white for harvest, reaping and sowing. He's saying a lot there. And then he's saying that people believed not because of the woman's testimony, but because of what he said. So if now we can remove ourselves over the text and look down upon it, what do we see and how does it apply to us? And I think the first thing we see is this. The gospel advances through seized opportunity, not perfect timing. The gospel advances through seized opportunity, not perfect timing. Do you think the timing for Jesus was perfect in this moment at the well when he is wearied from travel, when he is parched and thirsty, and this woman comes and he says, give me a drink? Why did he say, give me a drink? Because he was thirsty. This was the most inopportune time for Jesus to enter into a spiritual conversation. But he did it anyway. See, as we're sharing the gospel, as we're going through our day-to-day lives, there are opportunities all around us to share of this living water, of this eternal life, of this king that has come to set us free. And so often, we have the excuse of, well, the timing's not right. The opportunity is right here. All of us have our own well throughout the week where we encounter people one-on-one or at work or within our hobbies or wherever it is, and the opportunity is right there, but we don't seize it because the timing's not right. I think what we can see here from Jesus was Jesus was fully man, but he was not focused on his convenience of his timing. He was focused on the opportunity that was laid before him. This was a woman, remember, that he was not supposed to be talking to. This was a woman that was ceremonial unclean. This was a Samaritan woman. Did Jesus care? No. Did Jesus avoid her? No. He could have easily gone the alternative route around Samaria to get to Galilee, but he chose not to. They chose to go through Samaria. Why? for this moment, and not just this moment with this woman, but the other people that were transformed through both her testimony and Jesus's presence. See, the enemy loves to use the lie of bad timing in attempt to keep us from seizing the opportunity to share the gospel in God's timing. 
See, the gospel advances through these seized opportunities, opportunities that are before us every single day that we have the decision, are we going to seize them and take advantage of them or not? Because the timing is never perfect. There will always be an excuse. I want to tell you a story. I don't remember how many years ago this was, but I went to Seattle to help out with a harvest crusade. And we were passing out invites on the sidewalks and street corners and just inviting people to come and hear the gospel. And I remember there was this one kid who I saw three days in a row. He always had a hood over his head. He was passing out invites to strip bars. And I saw him every single day for three days straight. I would see him on the sidewalk. He would pass me a flyer and keep walking. The first time I saw him, God was saying, you need to talk to this kid, talk to him. Did I do it? No. Why? Because I was disobedient. Because my timing wasn't right. The timing wasn't perfect. The next day, same thing happens. Here he comes on the sidewalk right at me. He's passing out cards. I can't ever see his face because his hood is over his face. God's saying, speak to this person. Did I? No. Why? Because the timing wasn't right. The opportunity was there. The opportunity was there to be seized, but I was not I wasn't obedient. The third day, God made it so abundantly clear that I could not avoid it. If you've ever been to Seattle, you know that you don't walk on the sidewalks without having no one else around, right? There's people everywhere. Chaos, people going to and fro everywhere. This moment, here comes this kid again right at me, and I see him coming at me. There is no one on the sidewalk but me and him. You know what my first thought was? I'm going to cross the street and go around this way. I'm going to go around Samaria because I don't want to, I don't want to encounter this person. I mean, he's not my type. I mean, he, he works at a strip bar and who knows what's going to happen. And, but I was like, it's not God. We are having a conversation. So I keep walking. He goes to hand me a card and I say, wait, I said, I'll take that card. If you'll take this card, which was a harvest card, we started a conversation. Was the timing right? No, because I had a bunch of people saying, Luke, we got to go. We got to get to the event. Well, why was the event more important than this kid right here who needed the gospel? That was the very reason we were in Seattle was for people like him. And I had all these people, oh, we got to go. We got to go. We got to get to the event. I was like, no. For an hour and a half, I talked to this kid on the sidewalk, heard his story, heard his struggle, cared for him beyond just wanting to convert him. Like genuinely, who are you? See, an opportunity was there and it was seized. I took advantage of it and you know what God did? He set him free. I'll never forget it. I said, today is the day that you could be saved. And he says, I want it. I need it. My, my grandpa has been praying for me for years. You know what happened? We prayed for that kid. I pray, he prayed to accept Christ. For the first time, his hood was removed. Never seen his face, hardly. He lit up like a Christmas tree as if he had just been radically transformed. Why? Because he had 
We walked to a trash can, and I'm not kidding you, he probably threw away 250 invites out of his pockets into the trash can of invites to this strip bar. And he said, I have never felt so free. Would that have happened if I would not have seized the opportunity that God had put right in front of me to preach the gospel and to care about this person? No. Was the timing great? No. But you know what? Timing doesn't matter to God. Obedience does. God used that moment to set this man free. That's what Jesus did at the well. He was thirsty and he was tired and the timing was not right, but the opportunity was ready to be seized. If we could leave this place this morning understanding that, that there is opportunity all around us of people who need this living water, of people who need eternal life, and if we would not use the excuse of timing, but we would actually say, God, this opportunity is here, I'm just going to enter it. And don't make it awkward. <laughs> like, why does the gospel, why when we share the gospel, does it always come down, oh, that's awkward. Was, Jesus said, give me a drink. What about start with, hey, what's your name? I'm Luke. How long you lived here? Can I pray for you for anything? Like, it doesn't have to be awkward. We make it awkward. But if we will enter into relationship and seize the opportunity before us, God will do incredible things. He is the one that saves, not me. See, the mission of God really has little to do with my convenience, but everything to do with my obedience. Divine encounters often occur in the most unlikely places and in the most inconvenient times. Think about that. Divine encounters often occur in the most unlikely places. A sidewalk in Seattle at the most inconvenient times. I was supposed to be somewhere else, but somewhere else didn't matter in that moment. This kid mattered, and his eternity mattered. The second thing we see is seizing an opportunity results in sowing, but not always reaping. Think about that. Seizing an opportunity results in sowing, but not always reaping. Jesus is talking about this as he's saying, the fields are white for harvest. Some sow, others reap, but one day we'll all rejoice together. If we could get this, it would change everything. So often in American Christianity, we think preaching the gospel means we see a result every time. That's not true. Some sow, some reap. We never know the seed that we sowed, when it will be reaped, or who will reap it, or what that looks like. But we need to shift our perspective. Seizing an opportunity just means merely caring about the person that is in front of me, opening up a conversation, planting a seed of the gospel, and letting God do the rest. We don't control it. And I think that is what keeps us from evangelism, is we think we need to see results. Often, the greatest results are the seeds that you sow that you'll never know about. 
But if we don't seize the opportunity, those seeds are never sown. Think about it. Every time we communicate the gospel, some sort of seed is sown. Every time we communicate the gospel does not mean that we reap the seed that we planted, but someone might one day. And in heaven, we will know how they all work together. So our job is to seize the opportunity in the most inconvenient time to love someone and communicate truth with them. And don't pound it down their throat. Get to know them for who they are. People want to be cared for. They want to be treasured. This woman at the well, the fact that she came at noon all by herself proves that she was an outcast because women would come in the morning and the evening in groups to get water. But her, no, she wasn't because she had five husbands and the one who she was with was not her husband, so she came alone and Jesus met her. And did he judge her and condemn her? Absolutely not. He didn't. He just said, I'm offering you eternal life. If you would just ask, I would give. And think about this. The woman left Jesus without ever acknowledging to him that she believed that he was the Christ. After this conversation, it says right here, she left Jesus never acknowledging that he was the Christ, but she said this to others, come and see a man that told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ, she asked? Jesus sowed a seed here, and he never even saw it reaped in this moment. It happened later. But she left him without Jesus ever even seeing that be reaped. So don't take heart in this, that as we share the gospel, we do not control the results. All we control is our obedience to share the good news of the greatest king that has ever lived. That is our role. The timing is never perfect the opportunity is right before us every day. What's the difference? What's the gap? Obedience. Trusting that God will move through our feeble attempts to love people well and show them and proclaim to them the greatest message the world has ever heard. And often, it happens at the well. When you are tired when you are exhausted, and when you don't want to talk to anyone, there's an opportunity to be seized. The timing may not be right in your timing, in my timing, but in God's timing, it's there. Will you seize it? Will you seize it? See, I think one of the reasons evangelism tarries in this country is we put way too much emphasis on reaping. The pressure that if we share the gospel, we must see a response, otherwise we failed. This is simply not true. Do we want to see a result? Absolutely. Do I want to see a result? Absolutely. Why? Because heaven and hell are in the balance. Life and death are in the balance. But what we will see is that if we are faithful, God will do the rest in his timing. We don't control the results. All we can control is our faithfulness and our obedience. See, one day, the sower and the reaper 
will all rejoice together in the culmination of a great king that is to be worshipped. Third, and finally, I think we see this. The power of the gospel does not rest in the testimony of man, but in the words of God. And we see that here in verse 39, where it says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. But then it goes down in verse 41, it says, And many more believed because of what? Because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed who? The Savior of the world. See, my words, your words, can't change anyone. Why do you think we stand upon the word here at this church? Because it's these words that change everyone. And as I was thinking about this text this morning, I was thinking, good grief, this is a lot of text, and people may get lost. And, but I was thinking, you know what? We're just going to do it because these are the words that have life anyway. The very proclamation of the word of God, the very reading of the word of God is able and capable to take a heart of death and give it life, to take a heart of stone and give it flesh. It's the word that does the work. It's God's word that does the work. And we see that in this testimony, that when they heard for themselves, they then believed that Jesus was the Savior of the world. See, our testimony is to proclaim the one who will give living water and eternal life to whomever is thirsty and whomever will come. That's our testimony. And we need to realize, I think, that our testimony, while it is specific to us, while it is personal to us, it is not our own. Really, it's God's testimony about what he did in and through us that we proclaim to a lost and a hurting world. I was blind, but now I see. I was thirsty. I was looking for everything that the world had to offer. I was totally parched, and Jesus quenched my thirst with something so much more eternal. That's our testimony. It's not that it's about us, but that it's about what Jesus has done in my life. Paul says it this way. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in what? In demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. This woman was radically transformed at the well because of the power of God. He did it. He did it all. And it all started because Jesus seized an opportunity with a woman that he was not to be talking to in a moment that was not opportune, in a moment that was inconvenient to him. And in that moment, the power of God was unleashed through God himself to set a woman free. 
One thing I want to say here that we, I think we can see before we wrap this up is we can see a general outline for a testimony in here and that first, Jesus meets us where we are at. All testimonies kind of have this same outline. Jesus meets us where we're at. He met this woman at the well. He gives an invitation to living water and eternal life. He gives that invitation to her. He gives that to us. And then he reveals our sin. And he says, despite your sin, if you will still come to me and accept what I am giving you, I will set you free. And then one believes in him for salvation, and then we worship him in spirit and in truth. The whole testimony of this woman is laid out right here that is so similar to us. So if you're in here this morning, and maybe you came, and maybe you're saved, and maybe, like me, you're just thinking, man, I can think of all these opportunities that happened last week where God put someone right in front of me and I wouldn't even open my mouth because I was afraid of failing, because I was afraid that, well, I could preach the gospel and I might sound weird and funny and awkward, or maybe they don't accept Christ, or lay it all aside and just hear this. Like Jesus, seize the opportunity that is before you and let him do the rest. The timing is never perfect. Maybe you're in this room and you're just hurting. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you can't explain, you can't comprehend, you don't understand. And you're just thirsty for something that can quench the pain in your gut and in your soul. Jesus is saying, come to me and I will give you living water. I will give you eternal life. I will give you freedom. I will give you peace. I will give you hope. I will give you everything that you cannot muster on your own. I will give you if you will ask. Think about how amazing that is that we serve a God that is so good, that is so faithful, that if we will just come before him and ask, he will give. If we will just say, God, I need you. God, I'm thirsty. God, I'm starving for something that I cannot cultivate on my own. God, just give it to me. Give me yourself. And he answers that prayer, and he answers that cry. Think about it. So if you're here this morning, and your soul is hurting, if you don't know who Jesus is, this is the gospel. That God loved us so much He knew that we were condemned, as we studied weeks before, that he sent his son Jesus to a condemned world. He lived a perfect life, sinless life, while he was completely God and completely man. He hung on a cross, was crucified for you, completely dead, was buried in the grave, but on the third day he defeated death, rising to life to give you life. This is the gospel, that Jesus loves you so much 
that he would come to set you free if you would just turn from your sin and turn to him. If you would confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if that's you this morning, the opportunity is there. The invitation is there. Come to him. Let him set you free. Let him quench the thirst that you cannot quench. Let him give you the hope that you cannot muster. Let him offer you peace that is incomprehensible. Jesus is saying, I am here. I am constant. Just ask, and I will give you eternal life. That's the beauty of the gospel. That God loves you so much that he made a way to redeem what is broken and set you free. So if the worship team wants to come up, I just want to say this. If Maybe you're thinking this morning, well, Luke, what is a testimony? And I don't know if I have a testimony But if I do, I don't know what it looks like. I would say this. If you are not in Christ, you have no testimony that's been complete. You have a testimony, but it hasn't been complete. What completes a testimony is a finished work of Jesus. Your testimony could start and be completed today in this moment that I was blind, but now I see. I was thirsty, but now I am. My my thirst is fulfilled quenched. And it starts by bowing your knee to the king of all kings and saying, set me free. And if you're in this room this morning and you're like me, I have been deeply convicted this week that I have not seized opportunities that have been right before my very eyes because the timing has not been perfect, because it's been inconvenient to me, and it doesn't fit into my time clock, it doesn't fit into my scheduled day. Think about this if you are saved. Think about how radically different our world would look if each one of us in this room would seize an opportunity this week and not weigh the... And and not weigh the success of that opportunity by what we see reaped, but that we would trust that God is sowing something so much deeper and greater than we could ever comprehend if we would just be faithful. Seize the opportunity. Disregard the inopportune time and watch as God begins to move to set the captive free. This woman, this Samaritan woman at the well was radically transformed because Jesus seized an opportunity in the most inopportune time to proclaim the greatest truth the world has ever heard. Be obedient. Let God do the rest. And watch as revival begins to burst forth. If we will do that, I believe God will begin to move in a way that ushers revival 
to this place. Why? Because he's looking for a people to move in and through that are committed to him first and are committed to the advancement of the gospel, looking for any opportunity to proclaim this great news of a mighty Savior. God, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you that you are on the throne, that you are moving, and that you don't need us, but you choose to use us. So God, I pray this morning in this place that we would be a bunch of people that seize the opportunity before us with no other agenda other than to love the person that is there, to to be interested in them, to foster a relationship, to get to know them so that you might begin to stir, so that you might open that door for a conversation about you. God, and I pray for anyone in this room that is hurting, that is thirsty. Maybe they walked in this room and they don't even know what they were thirsty for, but this morning you showed them, God, that what they are thirsty for is something greater than themselves. They're thirsty for Jesus. And that if they would just ask, you would give fully of yourself and you would set them free. So God, wherever anyone is at in this room, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would move and touch each and every life in this room, including myself, where we need to be touched that you would show us that conviction is a good thing, that condemnation is from the enemy, but conviction is from the Spirit. And they are drastically different. You did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. So God, do a deep work in this place this morning. Set us free. Would you enable us? Would you equip us to go out and be the hands and feet of Jesus to a world that is hurting, to a world that is lost, to a people that are thirsty for something that is greater than themselves and they don't even know what it is. But they are thirsty for Jesus. They are thirsty for the one who can set them free. They are thirsty for the one who who offers hope in a hopeless world. God, move this morning. Do what only you can do for the sake of your name and not ours. Set the captives free. Mobilize the church. And God, I'm praying and I'm pleading that you would bring revival upon this great valley that we would be a bunch of sold out people that seize the opportunity regardless of the timing so that you might move in a mighty way. We love you, God. This is all about you. It's all for you. And it's in the mighty risen name of Jesus that we pray, the only one who can change and transform. Amen.